Before we get to today's show, I'd like to hear from you. This show is nothing without our listeners, and we want to make sure we provide you with what you're looking for. Our mailbox is open to all suggestions. So if you have a topic you want to learn about, or a guest you want to hear from, let us know by sending us an email to jagahealthandwellness at gmail.com. That's C-H-A-G-A-H-E-A-L-T-H-N-W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S at gmail.com. Now, enjoy the episode. How did a small-town sheet metal mechanic come to build one of Canada's most iconic fishing lodges? I'm your host, Steve Nidzwicki, and you'll find out about that and a whole lot more on the Outdoor Journal Radio Network's newest podcast, Diaries of a Lodge Owner. But this podcast will be more than that. Every week on Diaries of a Lodge Owner, I'm going to introduce you to a ton of great people, share their stories of our trials, tribulations, and inspirations. Learn and have plenty of laughs along the way. Meanwhile, we're sitting there bobbing along, trying to figure out how to catch a bass. And we both decided one day we were going to be on television doing a fishing show. My hands get sore a little bit when I'm reeling in all those bass in the summertime, but that's might be for more fishing than it was punching. You so confidently you said, hey, Pat, have you ever eaten a drum? Find Diaries of a Lodge Owner now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. As the world gets louder and louder, the lessons of our natural world become harder and harder to hear, but they are still available to those who know where to listen. I'm Jerry Olette and I was honored to serve as Ontario's Minister of Natural Resources. However, my journey into the woods didn't come from politics. Rather, it came from my time in the bush and a mushroom. In 2015, I was introduced to the birch-hungry fungus known as chaga, a tree conch with centuries of medicinal applications used by indigenous peoples all over the globe. After nearly a decade of harvest, use, testimonials and research, my skepticism has faded to obsession, and I now spend my life dedicated to improving the lives of others through natural means. But that's not what the show is about. My pursuit of this strange mushroom and my passion for the outdoors has brought me to the places and around the people that are shaped by our natural world. On Outdoor Journal Radio's Under the Canopy podcast, I'm going to take you along with me to see the places, meet the people, that will help you find your outdoor passion and help you live a life close to nature and under the canopy. Today, that person, backed by popular demand, is my son, Garrett Olette. On this week's show, we're going to learn all about the realities of camp jobs, chainsaw selection and maintenance, and judging a tree's health. So join me today for another great episode and hopefully we can inspire a few more people to live their lives under the canopy. Okay, and back by popular demand, like he's a podcast star, is Garrett Olette, my son. Good morning, Garrett. How's it going? It's going pretty good. Good morning. Good morning. And look, let everybody know where you are right now. Uh, I'm out in Calgary, Alberta right now. Calgary. What's the temperature like out there? 
Minus seven this morning. Minus seven. Well, that's not too bad. We're uh, we've warmed up here. It was zero when we got up, but uh, it's supposed to warm up to plus seven, I think, today and tomorrow. And it's the very end of November, so you can expect some cool weather out there. And that's coming, I'm sure, right? Absolutely, yeah. I think the rest of this week's supposed to be fairly nice, but I think colder weather's coming next week. Yeah, just like when you were out uh, working in British Columbia, all of a sudden the temperature changed pretty quick, right? Yeah. Yeah. It goes from fairly warm to fairly cold or fairly cold to pretty warm. Yeah. Well, there was a lot of interest, and actually we had uh, some people respond about the BC stuff and the experience that you had there. Now, before you went to BC, you did a camp job uh, potentially or worked at a camp for a bit of time here in Ontario. And maybe you can kind of go into a bit of the details of of what kind of a camp it was and what you were doing at that camp because it was kind of interesting. Maybe we should explain or you should explain a little bit about what camp jobs are and what your area of expertise is. Yeah, so just to go over what a camp job is then to start. A camp job is pretty much a location where your work or where the situation that you're working at is giving you housing or living conditions. Okay. So if you're, for me, in a camp job, I'm out there, they provide housing or lodging, um, more or less think of like military style of camping. Okay. So there's a mess hall for your center, for your, your meals and stuff like that. Right. And then they have some facilities and then more or less it's just a dorm room bunk kind of thing. A little bit more upscale than military, but very similar style. Okay, so... And now each of these camps are a little bit different, right? Each provide different kind of services. I mean, when you were in BC building the with um, building that dam for BC Hydro, the meals were quite spectacular from the way you were talking. And, yeah, so the camp in Ontario was smaller, right? Um, obviously, and the room, so it was a shared room this time. So you'd have your own bedroom, but you'd be sharing a bathroom and shower with your neighbor. Okay, so, so and, Jack and Jill style, right? So how how big? How many people were working at that job in BC? The job in BC was between three and four thousand on average. On average, and how about in Ontario? What kind of uh, when you did that camp job there? How many people were working there? I believe when I was there, I think it was only about five hundred to a thousand. Okay, so, so sniffing in size for sure, right? And Comparatively speaking, um, so first of all, what kind of a facility? Now, your area of expertise, so they bring in a lot of experts in, in trades areas, right? Yep. So, and you're a journeyman, a licensed uh, steel worker, which means yep. which means what to people that, that wouldn't know what that is? So journeyman or in the trades, people get their red seals, mm-hmm. which pretty much means that you are qualified to work across Canada, as well as in the States, depending on how your union works with your Red Seal. Right. So for me, in my field, I'm a Red Seal journeyman, which means I can travel anywhere across Canada. Obviously, you have to go through your your union to get approval to go to these locations. Right. And then if if I want to work in the States, for example, I'd have to contact the union in the States and then arrange with my union, which my home base would be for Toronto. Okay. And then from there, they can talk about transferring me over down to the States if I wanted to work in the States for opportunities there. Okay. So, and what specifically is your license in so people know? I mean, I know, but we're trying to let the audience know exactly what it is that you work with. Yeah. So I fall under the category of iron worker. And from there, there's structural and reinforcement. And I'm reinforcement. So I do rebar. Okay. So 
you're the rebar guy, then normally the rebar comes in and they use it uh, to to shore up what or to build facilities and how. Um, so what kind of stuff, for example, that uh, job that you were, camp you were in in Ontario, what was the structure that you were building the rebar for? So the structure we were doing there was for the processing plant for a gold mine. We were doing a, a job in Duberville, Ontario, which is about an hour, hour and a half north of Wawa. Okay. So from there, we were doing a gold mine. So there was structural and rebar both on site. So the rebar you... we were doing. Go ahead. The rebar we were doing all the reinforcement for the foundation of it. So pretty much the base level from ground. Okay. So that would be doing slabs or pouring big columns that go into the ground to anchor the building. Right. Okay. And then from there, we were doing the reinforcements for the track system for the gold process. So when they would do dig up the dirt, they would then process it down to this conveyor belt system. We were doing all the supports for the conveyor belt. We were doing the, the actual structural support for the rock crusher as well. Right. So they can crush up the material into a finer powder to go through the conveyor belt to the process into the gold mining room to be processed down and eventually the, to extract the gold. So when you go from a, um, a the number of workers that worked in BC compared to the number at the Duberville gold site, um, what was the was there a difference in the the food or the the options that they had? Like they had a gym and all kind of stuff in BC. From what I understand, did they have much of that in Duberville at the gold? Mine site? So in Duberville, they had similar things. The food was also different. It wasn't as much variety. In comparison, there was only one main uh, mess hall in Duberville, and they would only serve one or two meal options. So you'd have your main course being either chicken or beef tonight, and then you would have one soup maybe if they had soup that day that usually would be like a leftover thing from the night before if they had vegetables or stuff to make a soup with right and then they would have like a small little dessert section most of the time it was just cookies and muffins okay and they would have a small little lunch sandwich thing but it wasn't really customized at all it was just pre-made everything okay and then the difference in bc was there was certain nights that you would have Steak night was on Wednesdays. Prime rib was every um, Sunday. Then they also had Taco Tuesday. Then during the week, they would also have different specialty days. So for Canada Day, they had a Canada Day theme. For Victoria Day, when I was out there, it was all like native BC foods that they would select for that day that they did celebrations for. Oh, yeah. So, and, and certainly it wasn't that elaborate in Duberville and a smaller crowd. Now, I guess it, it, talking about the meals, it's kind of like a cafeteria style. Everybody kind of lines up and, and you go through the cafeteria and they, they serve you or how does it work? So it's pretty much just like as you described there. So it's cafeteria, you get in line, you grab your tray and then you'll say, I'll take a, a scoop of mashed potatoes. I'll take um, a piece of chicken there and I'll take some vegetables. And then you would just go back to where you're going to sit down and eat. Right. So is it something you could take back to your room if you wanted to? If you wanted to, so if you wanted to eat alone, you could grab a takeout container right. and then you would just give them to them and then they would fill the takeout container and then you would take that back to your room if you want to eat in your room. Okay. And what about other activities? Like do they have, so in, they, go ahead, in BC they had a movie theater or something? Yeah, BC they had a movie theater and they had like a games room. So there's like pool tables, um, they had two dartboards there, they had foosball up and they had more or less tables for playing board games, stuff like that. They had a selection there. 
and they had a few ping pong tables as well. Right. And in Duberville, they had pretty much just the one facility room, which included their gym, a TV room if you wanted to watch with other people, uh-huh. coworkers for that matter. And they had, I believe, one pool table and one ping pong table. Okay, so. So it's definitely a big difference. You could tell that the facility in BC was much more upscaled right. and then the one comparison to Duberville. Well, I guess it's it's hard to attract people. So basically, um, were they both the same? It was uh, 21 days working, 21 days straight, and they were 10 to 12 hours a day and then seven days off? That's correct. Both were uh, working at three and one, so three weeks on, one week off. Okay, and, and Duberville had some pretty interesting uh, things, as I recall. You weren't allowed to take up certain things or do certain things there, uh, very secretive? Yeah, because of the gold mining operation, you're, we were not allowed to take pictures of the site. You know, like if you wanted to get a picture to show your family back home, hey, this is what I'm doing today, this is what it looks like. They asked you not to take pictures because it is technically a gold mine, and they also didn't want their inside processing to be revealed for people for safety reasons as well as for competitive, yeah. you no know, vandalism as yeah. well as for theft because the gold mine there, the amount of gold they're supposed to be extracting. Because I can't remember when the cores were taken for this, but it was taken in early 1900s. I'm going to say, and the estimated value there, I believe, was either $3 billion worth of gold, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So they definitely didn't want information being leaked out about what's going on with the plant and how they're going to extract the gold. Yeah. So you mentioned cores, and I know what we know what cores are, but a lot of people wouldn't know what a core is. So maybe you can just kind of explain what a, and it's actually a drill core. So go ahead. Yeah. So it's a drill core. So what they do is they'll take more or less a massive drill and they will drill into the rock itself. And then from there, they'll snap off the interior core of the drill. So there's like a outer ring and an inner ring that's hollow. So they'll drill down and they'll extract that inner ring. And from there, they'll do their samples and look at what they pulled out to test where to get values or indications of how much gold is in the ground there. Yeah, and it tells you how far down the, the veins or the lines are. And essentially what they try to do is a bunch of different drilling to determine where the vein is because they could miss it by inches and not find any of the the, the gore, uh, gold that's there. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and I know we had, uh, we had the prospectors on that talked about retaining the sites and the information. So, so obviously it's been around for quite a while and the details of it. But as the price of gold goes up, the ability to extract it, it becomes more effective. But your case, it was the production facility, so you're building the bases so that they can make the, the, the location a go for uh, production in gold. Yep. So they were pretty much pre-mining when we were getting there because they were doing open pit and stockpiling everything. Okay. So I never was able to see the open pit because where we were was kind of in the bottom of the valley. Right. And so where they were processing was more or less just a massive natural exposed rock wall. And right. that's where they were going to drop everything off into the rock crusher, then going up the comparable to the processing plant. So the gold, the open pit was on the other side of that, which we never had work or jobs to do in there. Okay. So I was never able to see it. More or less, they also didn't really want people looking into there anyways. Yeah. Well, I, I recall uh, another MPP, Vic Fidelity, from, um, he was from North Bay, and he had a prospecting license. He was, to my knowledge, the only other 
member in the legislature that had a prospecting license like I did, that uh, he was, when I was at his house, he was showing me samples of uh, bits of gold that he picked up from the tailing sites. And if I remember correctly, I think it was up around, oh, to, it was around um, Tamiskaming, Tamogamy area that uh, where they did gold mining there and they'd close the, the mines down and people would go through We'll call the tailing, and that's kind of the waste sites of all the material after it's been processed. Now, I'm not sure um, we talked about this, but when we were up in Timmins, uh, do you remember what you found on that trail from uh, the tailings while we were in Timmins? No? Timmins, no, I would not remember that. Oh, how could you not remember that uh, the trail that we walked when we got the oil change on your truck? And you found uh, um, a tailings rock on the trail that had gold in it. And you've still got that at uh, the house back at home. It's, uh, I think, a quartz rock that had uh, gold bits in it still. Oh, yes. I do remember that now. I was, uh, yeah. didn't recall that, really. Yeah, that was just a couple of years ago. And uh, actually, it's kind of surprising that uh, when you go to these tailing sites, you can find gold. But I think uh, the thing here is it's, it's very different camps, very different things with different requirements. And it was a bit cold. And, and now you're going to be heading out to uh, Saskatchewan to do some work at a mine out there. And maybe you could just kind of give us a little bit of, of insight on what's going to take place there and how that'll work. Yeah, so I was indicated that I'll be going out in Saskatchewan in the spring. They're doing a potash mine there. Okay. And the project timeline is roughly, I believe, between five and eight years. Does that mean that there's five and eight years worth of work for you? Or does that mean uh, because you're part of it, like when you're in BC, okay, the, the, the spill pads were done, uh, the, the, the concrete pouring was done, so your part was done, the same thing there? Or how does that work? Yeah, so... Total timeline would be five to eight years. I think for rebar work, they're probably looking at, I believe, around five years. Okay. So there's obviously would be a couple of years of finishing work for other trades to do or finishing the facilities, things like that for the operational area. Right. So for me, roughly, I'm expecting probably about five years worth of work. Oh, Okay. Well, mom won't be happy about that. <laughs> no, but... Pays the bills. <laughs> yeah, I'll make sure that she doesn't listen to this podcast to get a little surprise. But whereabouts in Saskatchewan is that, Garrett? Um, I believe it's Jansen, so roughly between Saskatoon and Regina and Saskatchewan. So more or less in the middle lower um, land of Saskatchewan there. Right. Uh, and I can recall that it was very interesting when they talk about, and it's potash that... Uh, uh, you mentioned the mine there. When I was in Winnipeg on committee hearings, I sat on this uh, uh, committee hearings with the provincial government that uh, had had us meet with the other committees. It's public uh, accounts, which is probably one of the most effective. What it does do is it, it looks at all the, this committee, provincial committee, what it does do is it looks at each of the ministries and it's a it's an auditor general that comes in and does audits of the ministry and the various public accounts get together once a year across Canada to discuss what's beneficial and what to watch out for and all it does is it's a basically an external body that does checks and balances on the government to make sure that they're they're doing things in the best interests of the public at large because you're spending taxpayers dollars but we are out in Winnipeg and they took us to a potash mine and showed us the mine. I was amazed how far down they were uh, 
And the details about, well, this part is in Manitoba and this part is in Saskatchewan. So Manitoba could harvest or mine the potash from its side of this deposit, which was quite a distance under the ground, whereas Saskatchewan would then be able to harvest this amount. So it was kind of very interesting, but potash is a, a very good commodity. And I met individuals who worked in the mining industry that uh, was was dealing with potash, and the inspectors came in and actually inspected the ships to make sure that the containers part of the ships where they put the potash was spotless. So it would go in there to make sure there was no rust and all the rest of it so it didn't get mixed in with the potash and contaminate the soil. So it's very interesting, and it's it's good to hear that uh, that things are happening in those areas and that Canada can actually produce quite a bit of potash. So, but Garrett, uh, one of the things that we wanted to talk about was uh, was a lot of the stuff about, uh, you know, because I mentioned that uh, we had a, a great response from uh, from your previous podcast, and you're backed by popular demand, that um, the chainsaw aspect. So a lot uh-huh. of people were, were you know, because you've got quite a, we've got quite a few saws in the shed. And how do you determine... Um, size of chainsaw would somebody who's just starting out, you know, and they see a big sale on and what type of chainsaw do people use? So let's talk about chainsaw size to start off with. How do you pick a chainsaw to figure out what you need for the job you want to do? Well, for me, indications of picking it, I look at it long-term most of the time when I'd make my decisions there. Okay. So if I was say just starting out, I have I have a need for a chainsaw, but I don't see myself going farther with it because I have a down tree on my property or I have things I want to clean up and do a bit of yard work with, things like that. I'm definitely not myself wouldn't go for the biggest chainsaw out there because when you start doing it, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of stress on the body. So if you're not going to see yourself going right into it off the bat, I would go with just look at the price of something that's on sale. There's usually a decent chainsaw right around the $300 mark when usually it's on sale for. And usually it comes with a kit as well for that, for those price ranges there. So it includes like the, the actual plastic hard box to protect your saw. It usually comes with a spare chain as well. And then a bit of oil. Yeah. And a lot of times they'll come with it, depending on what type of saw you get. Um, now size wise, you're looking at what, about a 45, anywhere from say a, 45 to a 50 cc saw is would be a good one for occasional use sort of thing? Absolutely. Like anything between 40 and 50, 40, even low end, right around 60 is fine too. Especially if you're looking for something that you want to invest the money in because you might have several jobs going down the road. I would definitely recommend between anywhere from a 40 to a 60, even low end 60 cc chainsaws because that'll give you enough power and torque to do any job if you come across a bigger tree that falls down. That way you can still manage it without having to buy a second saw to do the bigger one if that's what happens down the road. Yeah, although although a question about, you know, the low end, because that 038, uh, the steel, that's a 64cc, a farm boss, um, it gets heavy, and when somebody hasn't got a lot of experience with a chainsaw, Boy, uh, it, it it can do a number. You got to make sure that that kick bar is in place. But the lower end saws, you know, anywhere from around uh, 45, 50 cc would be a good one for somebody who's got a little bit of cleanup work to do. And it's, you know, not that hard to, to sharpen. And like we talked about before, the, you know, the length of the bar. I mean, longer the bar, the more you have to sharpen. 
the more teeth you have to sharpen if you're doing it by hand. But it's a lot easier, as you mentioned in the last podcast, uh, with a little bit longer bar so you don't have to bend down as much for us. Uh, guys who are, how shall I say, gaining experience in life. <laughs> We're getting older. Exactly, yeah. 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 So, and, and some of the stuff is a lot of questions, and I happen to notice on a lot of, of inquiries on Facebook, what type, uh, type of chainsaw to go with? What, what do I buy? And comments there, any comments? Well, I would recommend, it's not about what you buy, like what's the best saw, it's what's in your area. So, right. for example, for where we are located, there is a far vast amount of number of steel dealerships in the area. Right. So it's easier for me to get parts, to get service, to do a tune-up because they're experts in steel and that's what I'm going to have. Right. But for, say, someone up in, say, Northern Ontario where Husqvarna is a more of a prominent source and dealerships there, I would recommend going with a Husqvarna because in comparison, they're going to be very good saws if you go with a steel. If you go with a Husqvarna, they're very good saws. It's just when you need to get service or get looked at, because if you want to keep it protected and preserved for such a long-term use, I would definitely recommend what is around you. Yeah. That's what I would go for. Yeah, because in our area, it's really hard to find a Husky dealership. I think there's, you could probably find like 20 to 1 uh, steel to Husky, but whereas, you know, Pierre, our buddy up north, it would be the opposite. It would be 20 to 1 uh, Huskies, Husky dealerships to, uh, to, to steel. So, yeah, exactly. You know, find out what's in your area. And plus, they will give you, they'll have a lot more expertise on being able to give you advice of what kind of saw you size you need. Now, your first saw you bought was a special kind of saw. Maybe you can just kind of, what do people mean? What's a special kind of saw? You know, the little one? So, the lim- yeah, so a special saw would be something like an arborist saw. Okay. And this saw is an 800 series steel okay. and it's a handheld. So pretty much I grab it from the top and you can use it with one hand. And why would and you, it is? Yeah, go ahead. And you would use it with one hand because so when you're climbing up in trees or you're limbing things like that and you need to have maximum extension, I can hold the chainsaw in one arm and have my arm fully extended out and still be able to limb branches and cut easily right. without having to put a lot of strain on my body. So it was a special saw that I bought because I was doing a lot of cleaning up and doing a bit of arborist work, like pruning, things like that. And it was definitely an opportunity to make a saw that I was like, this would help me with, again, reducing stress on my body, easier to use, very efficient chainsaw. So when you say, you know, an arborist saw, so you're you're doing a lot of limbing and, and cleaning when you're, when you're falling uh, does, how, do you, how do you get up to that high in the tree? I mean, we know how you get up, but let everybody else know what you use to get up that high. Yeah, so for climbing trees, you're going to use spurs. There's two types of spurs. There's pole spurs and there's tree spurs. Okay. The main difference is pole spurs, there's spurs only, I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but I believe it's only a two-inch spur. And then in a tree spur, I believe it's three to four inches. Yeah, that's so you can get past the bark right into the meat of the tree. That's correct. Yeah. So, so, and not only the climbing spurs, but you got uh, the safety equipment, which is very key. I mean, this is, this is stuff that we don't, we don't suggest to anybody to get out there and, and you know, uh, go buy a set of spurs because you're going to climb. No, you need some expertise and courses and stuff like that. But uh, look, kind of go over the, the safety equipment used. And I mean, just the other day you were up at Rowley's and uh, you had to spur a tree for him to, to uh, run a, a fall line for him. So, what kind of safety yep, equipment so, do you use there? 
for me, I use a safety belt, which was, I have just a single belt because I'm not going around a lot of limbs. Cause usually if I'm going around limbs, I'm going to cut them off because the tree's going to come down or the branches are dead anyways. Right. So I have a safety belt, which is, if there was like, say, weightlifting belts in comparison for people that don't know what a safety belt is, it's a very thick padded belt that goes around your lower back. And then from there, there is a, I prefer leather. You can get different materials, but a leather belt that then you will go wrap around the tree. Right. And more or less, you are using your spurs with that belt and shimming up the tree. And then when you get up in the tree, there's a lot more rigging involved. So there's a fall line, safety line, and there's a lot more to it than just putting the belt on going up. So when you're going up in the tree, you can tie off a safety line. So if you fall, it'll self-catch it. There's right. a lot of aspects in there that if you wanted to get into this, I would definitely recommend going into a course because there's a lot more aspects about it. And just for overall safety, because when you feel safe, you feel better doing your job. I would definitely recommend going into the course. Yeah. Yeah, it's so it's it's like when you see those uh, lumberjack competitions where they're they're clip pole climbing. They've got spurs on there, and they they run up with a a pole strap with a safety harness with a strap that goes around the tree, and they kind of they flip it up and they climb, and they flip it up and they climb, and they flip it up and they climb. Right? Yep. Yeah, and so it, it's not something for somebody, but basically starting off. So find out the the what what we're saying and what you're saying is find out who the normal saw carrier is in your area that has expertise and the, and ask them and they'll give you some insight. So your first one was kind of a, a limbing saw, but now you got the, uh, the, the, how shall I say it? The big one, your next saw that you got was a, a big one that had some interesting options on it as well. Yeah. So my big saw, it's, it's great to have because I do a lot of cutting. Like we, we cut about 30 bush quarter a year and I split it all by hand. But in that process, I, it's nice having the bigger saw for when you're dropping trees. If I can put a 24-inch bar in my saw and handle it, then it makes it easier for me to do a straight cut instead of having to work each side of the tree because my bar length or the sawing area is so minimal. So I can have a greater saw length. I can do one cut instead of doing two. Right. So that's definitely why I, I got the bigger saw there because there's a lot more easy application. How many and it can handle different sizes of bars. How many cc's? I believe it was 78 cc. Yeah, so it's it's pretty big, and with that comes a lot of weight. And when you add the, when you fill the uh, the bar lubricant uh, oil uh, and the gas, it adds to the weight as well, which which kind of uh, adds to the strain, especially on how shall I say more experienced individuals uh, or older people um, that uh, it just takes more to do. But you know and. What a week and a half ago, we did about three bush cord and a couple of face cord, and my wrists are still feeling it with the carpal tunnel. But the one thing about that um, that that big steel you got was it a four sixty two? I think that's the number, isn't it? A four sixty two steel. I think that's the number. Yeah. Yeah, it had a in the winter time. It's got a special option on it as well. Yeah, it's got the heated grip. Definitely makes a difference because when your hands get cold and they kind of get start cramping up, it's nice to have that heated grip to keep them a little bit more loose, a little bit more uh, flexible, so you don't get you don't feel it a couple days after. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can tell you after uh, after we did that, uh, um, those uh, three bush cord and a couple of face cords, um, I started back in on the chaga, and it took me about. Uh, Four days, five days of uh, regular Jagged consumption, and 
it helps uh, eliminate a lot of the inflammation that that uh, and just speeds up the, the healing process for us. So that's pretty good. And now it's time for another testimonial for Chaga Health and Wellness. Hi, it's Jerry from Chaga Health and Wellness. We're here in Lindsay with Tula, who is actually from Finland and uses Chaga. Tula, you've had some good experiences with Chaga. Can you just tell us what that experience is? Yes, I got sick with fibro, and uh, one weekend my husband came here alone. I was home, and uh, he brought your uh, your leaflet. Right. And I read it, and I said, next weekend when we go to a market, we're gonna buy it some. And so we started putting it in our morning smoothie. Right. And uh, among a few other things that I was doing because of that, the chaka has been the steady one. Right. I would not want to live without it. Oh, good. Yeah. So it's been working for me. Very good. Lots of ways. And you had uh, some good luck with blood pressure as well. Oh, right. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for remembering that. That's, uh, yeah, I had a little bit of high elevated blood pressure and within two weeks of starting that every day, every morning, uh, it went to normal. And you think the chaga was the reason why? Well, I didn't do anything else in that 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 time time. frame. Very good. And so how much chaga did you have and how did you have it? Well, we just put that powder in a smoothie. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's about tablespoon. Yeah. No, it's less than tablespoon for teaspoon? two of us. Yeah. yeah. So you don't need that much. Right. But a teaspoon, yeah? Yeah. Very good. Well, thanks for very much for sharing that. We really appreciate that and wish you all the best with the Chaga. Oh, you're from Finland as well. And yeah. Chaga is pretty popular in Finland, is it not? I think it probably is because there's some professors in a university that uh, that's teaching it and... Uh, talking about it and of course it's big in Russia right uh, because that's where you know the northern woods that came comes from yeah yeah and of course Finland has lots of birch trees right yeah and it's so the they, only mushroom that you can't forage in Finland you're allowed to forage everything else but not in China oh very good well thanks very much for sharing that okay have a great day We interrupt this program to bring you a special offer from Chaga Health and Wellness. If you've listened this far and you're still wondering about this strange mushroom that I keep talking about and whether you would benefit from it or not, I may have something of interest to you. To thank you for listening to the show, I'm going to make trying Chaga that much easier by giving you a dollar off all our Chaga products at checkout. All you have to do is head over to our website, ChagaHealthAndWellness.com Place a few items in the cart and check out with the code CANOPY C-A-N-O-P-Y If you're new to Chaga I'd highly recommend the regular Chaga tea This comes with 15 tea bags per package and each bag gives you around 5 or 6 cups of tea Hey, thanks for listening Back to the episode One of the questions that come up is when you're tightening your chain how tight do you make it? And what's a, a good suggestion on uh, how to tell how tight, if it's too tight, if it's not tight enough? Like, so you 
you tighten it, and there's different uh, saws have different mechanisms to tighten it, tighten it up. So, how do you tighten it, and what can you use? I know there's a special way that we do it, but maybe you can let people in on that. Well, just to start for indication of the saw, how like tight it is. Right. Pretty much, have the saw off and grab the chain itself, and then pull it because in the actual mechanics of the chain, there is a gear that's going to allow the chain to rotate. Right. And that's what grips the saw, spins the saw, so it makes a cutting action. So when you're trying to test how tight it is, if you should be able to grab it and pull that chain and not feel a lot of resistance, it should be able to nice, nice and smoothly glide. But you want it to glide so it's not like it just feels like it's falling out. You're having a bit of a pull to it, but right. a nice glide. Yeah. More or less, think of like sliding a back door in some like a screen door or something like that. If it feels like it's struggling a bit, well, then that's because it's probably too tight or it's not lubricated enough and it's too tight. You should be able to open that door and like be able to see like, it slides nicely across. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people realize that a lot of these chains actually stretch out of usage. And that's why you, yeah. you tighten it and you check it. And, and one of the ways that, that we did that uh, actually, again, back to Roly, Roly showed me was he would take the file and um, put the file in between the chain and the bar and then tighten it down so it was snug and then pull the file out. And that way there was enough play in there that uh, when you, you know, obviously the chains, uh, the saw is off when you're tightening it. And we just make sure because you're dealing with some pretty heavy duty equipment that can do a lot of damage to human the body if you don't do it in a common sense way. So it's off and you check it to check and see how tight you can tighten it down. We tightened it down and then you pull the the, the edge of the file out. Now, we just use the, the non-file part. Actually, there's a part of the file that has kind of a, a pointy end because you can put it in a in a, a wood holder to hold it in place and uh, tighten it down and then pull it out afterwards. And that's usually a good indicator of how tight it she, should be. But you got to check it depending on how often you do it too. Yeah, because like, as you're cutting all day, the saw is going to heat up and expand. Like anything, when it gets warmer, things and particles expand. Same applies to a chainsaw. So as you're, we were cutting all day and, you know, you'd run out of gas and you'd go to fill up again. You should be checking the saw then. You should be checking it after you realize you've been cutting for a while because it will come loose. And if it comes loose, it can cause a lot of damage because it can pretty much fly right off. The chain could snap because it's way too loose and it's creating a lot of vibration in there, which could cause it to snap. Right. So it's good to check your saw every so often. When you kind of, it's like checking your mirrors when you're driving. When you think about it, you should probably check it. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the things as, as well as working with the equipment. I always suggest that at the end of the day, um, make sure, uh, I always fill up the tanks, the oil tank, the gas tank, make sure the chain is sh uh, sharp and tight so it's ready to go the next day because by the end of the day, you're pretty tired. And rather than use the, when we start off of the day, when, when I start off, I've got a lot of energy and go, go, go. I don't want to spend the time wasting the time trying to sharpen the, the chain or tighten it down. But at the end of the day when we're doing it, if I leave the saw so it's ready to go, and you never know. I mean, do you remember the one hockey camp that we had that that storm came in and all of a sudden all the trees blew across the road and cars couldn't get down the roads and all that kind of stuff when we were up in Halliburton that grabbed the saw and we had to go out and clear the road for people, but it was ready to go because it was full of gas, oil, and the chain was sharpened and tight so that you could use it right away is one of the big things to make sure it's ready. Yeah, absolutely. Just it's 
same situation not too long ago when uh, we had the big ice storm that came through and all people's driveways, there's big limbs, trees were blown over people's driveways and road axes. So just in our neighborhood, that's when it's good to have your saw ready to go because you never know when there's going to be an emergency. Yep. And if we were to grab that saw and it wasn't ready to go and you ran it when it had no oil, you could definitely burn up the motor very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, you got to make sure that uh, that oil, and the right oil, because they have, um, and that's something else, there's there's different grades of oil you put in for your bar. Maybe you could just kind of explain as to what you use and why. Yeah, so there's different grades. So more or less, there's also different mixes for your gas. So most commonly, there's a 40 to 1 and a 51, which means the a two-stroke gas mix you're going to add to, if it's a 41, I believe it's different for every application, but 41 is about 20 liters, 50 to 1, it's about 10 liters. But let's just go, I use a 50 to 1, and I know for my gas application, for what it says for my saw, it's a 50 to 1. Right. So I have a 10-liter gas uh, tank. Yep. I fill it up, and I have 200 milliliters of mix. Right. That will be your 50 to 1 ratio. And you can also, depends on the season as well and depending on your age of your saw, if you really want to get technical with it. If you find the saw needs a little bit more oil in it because it's cold starting and cold cranking, things like that, then you would want to, you can probably go maybe a little bit less gas to the to the oil mix there. If you find the saw is smoking a bit, then you probably want to go with a little bit more oil as well. Yeah, well, so that's that's really fine tuning and playing with something that you'll you'll learn that through the years of experiences. I've learned from the people with experience that there's different applications for different times of the year, different temperatures to get a better application out of your saw and gas ratio. Yeah, well, we try to follow the 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 guidelines for the 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 saw itself. So it says forty to one. We kept to forty one. But the oil I was I was talking about was summer oil for your bar and winter oil. And why is the difference there? Oh, I understand. Yeah. So the difference there is the thickness in the oil so that, um, cause when it's colder out, the oil, it needs will stiffen up a bit. So the winter oil is very more loose and it's not as thick or, um, yeah. the viscosity of, I believe that's the word I'm looking for there. Yeah, it's a lot more, yeah, it's a lot more, less like maple syrup, more like water. Yeah. So that way it lubricates your bar a lot better. And, and in the summertime, it's a lot thicker because it's it's hotter out and the oil will thin out. And so it's a thicker oil to use in the summertime. Yep. And, and then we had friends like Doug, bless his soul, who was around. Now, Doug used to, and, and we suggest following the, the guidelines for the saw you buy. And you can talk to your, your different reps. But Doug used to use old motor oil as his oil to lubricate the bar and for his bar. But that complicates problems as well because it's not clean and then you could clog up a lot of the filters, but that's for you to decide whether you want to do stuff like that or talk to your local expert if you want to look at options like that. Yep, there's definitely, uh, like I said, tricks of the trade, things you learn, things you discover. I definitely just recommend going with the saw calls for because that'll give you the most optimal performance because all these companies will run tests for their saws and they say we ran the saw best at a 50 to 1 ratio so that's what we recommend yep and the bar oil the same thing but now the other thing is one of the tricks of the trade you just mentioned was that uh, uh, i know one of the way ways i 
make a life lead easier is when I go out to do a job now, I just fill the tank and the oil the gas tank and the oil tank and the saw, and I don't bring oil and gas out with me because I know by the time I'm done one tank, I've had enough, my body's had enough now at this age to say that's enough for today. And you can still get quite a bit done with one tank. Yeah, same thing uh, even when you're splitting wood too. I remember the application there you said for when we have the wood splitter for stuff that's naughty and things like that, or if I'm not there to split, he'll run the wood saw. Right. Usually one tank gets you pretty close to a bush cord worth of wood there. Yep. Now, and, and then tricks of the trade again. Now, some of the other things is that Roly showed us a little trick on his saw because he showed up at the camp a couple weeks ago and he had a saw there that had a, basically it was a coat hanger tied to the handlebar, right? Do you remember it? Yep. And what did he do with that or how, what was that for? So that's for measuring the blocks that he had there. So he would have us, so when you're cutting a log up, that the coat hanger, would hang off the handle there and be stretched out to exactly where he needed. So if it was 16 inch pieces, which was usually the standard size for to buy wood at that coat hanger would stretch out 16 inches. It would have a bit of a hook to it. So you could pretty much bump it to the end of the log. And from right there, you'd make your cut and that'd be 16 inches every time. It helps speed it up because sometimes you don't have a 16 inch bar. You have an 18 inch bar. You have a 20 inch bar. You have a 24 inch bar. So it takes time and a lot of bending down, measuring, lifting back up and cutting, which puts strain on the body. So if you're able to measure quickly and more efficiently without having to turn your saw, if there's a little, you can put a notch in your bar and say this 16 inches, you line up, make your cut. It saves you a lot of time by just bumping that piece of wire to the end of your log, make your cut. Yeah. And that's what we used to do was we, uh, it was a good idea because you can take this coat hanger, measure it out to 16 inches if that's what size you want your blocks in when your tree is down now, uh, and then cut it right away and you know where the next one's going to be. So you're not trying to figure it out with ours. We, we take a, basically one of the files for it and the pointy end of the file, just make a little scratch mark on it that says this is a 16 inch on this particular bar. And that tells us and we can measure that out. Something else then the, the height when you're cutting a stump when you're cutting the tree down how high up uh, should you cut it what's one of the the tricks of the trade there well it's always kind of what you're comfortable at to start but usually it's better to cut it so if you're saying if you're going to cut in 16 inch blocks well then take from where we're going to your baseline cut is wherever the flattest part or how low you want to cut it and that's where you're going to leave it right. you're going to measure 16 inches up or you can go 32 if it's better for you. You can also, if you wanted to do a 24 inch, it depends, but go 16 inches up is what we do. Yep. And that's where you're going to make your cut because at the end of the, when you're done cutting your tree down, you can cut that block at the ground level that you're comfortable with. So you don't put your saw in the dirt, Yeah, make your cut there. So then you also have a 16 inch block from the stump. Yeah. And so, and like you said, I think the key part of what you said is where you feel comfortable. You, you don't want to be struggling with the saw, and especially at the end of the day after you've been using the saw all, all along. But a 16-inch cut is where we would start so that when once the tree is down, we can cut that. Now, yep. one, of, one of the other tricks, though, is before you bring the tree down, um, we kind of lay out stuff to, to make it easier once the tree is down to cut up. Maybe you could kind of give some insight of that if you know what I'm talking about or do I need to give you a little reminder. No, I do. So when you're going to cut the tree down and you get pretty accurate and you can drop it on a loony, 
you can put down rollers or put down other logs that you already have down. So when you drop the tree, it lands on top of that. So that way, when you're making your cut, it's off the ground just enough. So there's air underneath the tree. So that way your saw is not catching the dirt or you're getting close to it. So that way you can just make a straight cut through the blocks, which is much easier, much more efficient. Yeah, so we lay these trees down, and then, uh, you know, we can fall pretty accurately, so it falls on and lands on those logs, so it's not laying on the ground, because every time your bar and your chain touch the ground, it dulls it. Dulls it, yeah, it puts uh, dirt through a lot of the system there, and it clogs things up, and definitely can make the saw run a lot more poorly or non-efficient than it should be. Yep, so that just helps to... So when you're blocking up, it makes it a lot easier as well because you can cut right through. Yep. Yep. And so some of the other stuff, though, is uh, how do we know if a tree is is healthy tree or is it a dying tree? And what do we look at to determine there? Any suggestions? Well, there's a few indicators. I'll start with um, one of the most common ones that people can easily identify is if the tree has mushrooms growing on it. Right. So brachian fungus, hoof conch. It's an indication that the immune system of the tree has been damaged or it's been weakened and it is starting to die off. So that's an indicator of a tree is dying. Right. Um, for birch trees, for example, here, birch trees die from the top down. Right. So if you see that the top of the tree is starting to look bad and it's dying and there's the top limbs are not producing leaves in the springtime, stuff like that, that's an indicator that the tree is dying as well. Right. Yeah, but even though it's got a hoof conch or I know that birch at the um, at the cottage that we have right by the, the front deck, it's been dying for a long time, but it's still producing. It's still got on that um, a lot of leaves and a lot of greenery, but there's a lot of hoof conch on it. And eventually that tree is going to die off. And it's taken a few years, but it's an indicator if, you, if you're deciding, okay, which tree do I pick? Well, you want to keep the healthy ones. You can tell the ones that their immune systems are breaking down because they've got, as you mentioned, some of the bracken uh, funguses or the shelf funguses like uh, artist conch or hoof conch and a bunch of others that indicate that the tree is starting to go. And that's a good way to, to give some people some, some insight of that. So and, and mm-hmm. some, some of the other stuff, though, is, is um, y- y- there's some really dangerous stuff out there that uh, I know I used to belong to the South Central Ontario Forestry uh, Safety Association. And one of the people there, they were skidding. And the problem was, was the log was too big when they were hauling it out. And uh, it was uh, the the owner's wife who was driving the tractor skidding it out. And there's courses for skidding that she yanked on that and the tractor flipped over backwards and ended up uh, causing her to lose her life over that. So there's a lot of dangerous stuff on that. But if you're hauling out logs, um, and I watched a show, actually it was the Waltons, where they hooked up a chain and they had it on, my belief was the wrong end of the log. What's the right end of the log to haul out when you're skidding it? Well, you should be hauling it from the thin end or the small end. Right. That way it's not going to dig in on you when you're hauling it out. Yeah. And another little safety thing that makes a huge difference is you have an old toboggan or an old sled or even just a piece of like plastic in a way and you can put over the front of the log just to stop it from catching and digging into the ground so that way you don't flip over or you don't, you know, more or less the log flips flips up on you for sometimes. It's good to have like even a little piece in front there so that when you're hauling it out, it just keeps everything going underneath it. Yeah. 
And, and some of it too is, you know, if, if you're in skidding is an art in itself. And we mentioned, you know, you got to be safe. You got to use all options out there. There's courses out there. that will give you that or some instructional stuff. And of course, everything is available. I haven't checked on YouTube now. I uh, look how to do it. But if you got a tractor with a, a like a three point hitch where you can lift the log up, then it doesn't really matter. You can lift the, the heavy end. But if you're just hauling straight off the ground, like quite frankly, uh, what do we use to skid some logs out, Garrett? Now, we've used ATVs and we've used tractors before, yeah. but most of the time we've used ATVs mainly. And trucks. When we're doing yeah. that, we hook it up to the small end of the log so it's not digging in, and the, the heavy end will hold it up. Because the more dirt you get in the bark, what happens to the chain, just like we discussed? Yeah, same application. If you're, the bark and the mud gets all in through the barks and grooves and everything like that, and you're cutting, it's the same application of putting your saw in the ground. It's going to get full of dirt and... It's going to dollar your saw every single time. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, we've given a, um, a lot of people some more insight on some of the safety stuff. And like we said, uh, the biggest thing is safety. Um, you got to make sure you got the experience. There's courses, stuff and available. And, and look out there to make sure you're doing it in a safe manner and never take things for granted. You know, safety equipment. I know, quite frankly, um, the, the masks or the shields that everybody uh, uses or that they come with a lot of saws when you get a kit with it. It has a helmet, a safety helmet and a, and a mask, like a screen mask. If you don't want uh, sawdust chips going up your nose when you're breathing because it's kicking back, uh, I've experienced that. Those shields help out in a lot of different ways to, to be safe. And it's always important safety first, right? It, yep, it is. And especially just going back to when we were talking about climbing up the trees as well, it's always important to have a hundred percent tie off of the tree. So indications of being like, if you're going around limbs and stuff like that, if you can't cut it off and you're like, Oh, I'll just grab the limb with my, my hand here and disconnect or reconnect above it. I highly recommend you don't do that and get yourself. If you're fine, you're going to be in those situations a lot more. There's things like double lanyards. So you're always a hundred percent tied off. Yeah. And the big thing is there's, you got to learn the canopy. And if you look at yep. a canopy, it's those small branches up top that may not look that big that could end up uh, costing your life and everything else. So when we're cutting, we're looking at the top of the canopy when it's what's potentially coming down. And if anything's up there, if we take down a tree and there's some branches up there, uh, we'll leave the tree down. We'll stay away from that until such time as, a, say, a strong wind's gone through to clear those branches in the canopy up and then make it a lot work, a safer place to work. Absolutely, yeah. Always good to double-check your area as well. Yep. Okay, Garrett. Well, we appreciate that, and we think that uh, uh, we've given some information out there for people to understand uh, how to be safe and some of the, the tips on what to look for in a saw and how to make sure your area is clean and make sure the, the work is, is as safe as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Pleasure to be on, and I'm always more than happy to share some information and insight to give people that like you said, buying their first saw, you know, it pretty much comes down to what's around your area. Size-wise, it's if you're finding you're going to be cutting saw long-term, then get a bigger saw. If you're finding you're just cleaning up proper remains kind of thing, anywhere between 40 and 60 there is more than fine for application there. Yep. And we look forward to you when you're back here from Calgary and we can get out there and spend some more time in the bush under the canopy.
What brings people together more than fishing and hunting? How about food? I'm Chef Antonio Maleca, and I've spent years catering to the stars. Now, on Outdoor Journal Radio's Eat and Wild podcast, Luis, Hookset, and I are bringing our expertise and Rolodex to our real passion, the outdoors. Each week, we're bringing you inside the boat, tree stand, or duck blind and giving you real advice that you can use to make the most out of your fishing game. You're going to flip that duck breast over once you get a nice hard sear on that breast. You don't want to sear the actual meat. And it's not just us chatting here. If you can name a celebrity, we've probably worked with them. And I think you might be surprised who likes to hunt and fish. When Kit Harrington asks me to prepare him sashimi with his bass, I couldn't say no. Whatever Taylor Sheridan wanted, I made sure I had it. Burgers, steak, anything off the barbecue. That's a true cowboy. All Jeremy Renner wanted to have was lemon ginger shots all day. Find Eating Wild now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts.